Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This episode will be a pilot ground school lesson in the format of a guided discussion. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. Many of our ground school lessons include handouts, which you can find along with other resources in the podcast show notes. They are also on our website, landingswithaflare.com. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. We are going to get started. Previously, we spoke about what a landing was, and we spoke about especially an approach, that different part of the landing. Now, we're going to continue on with the other three parts of the landing. We said that a landing, at least according to the FAA, has four parts. The approach, the flare, which is also called the roundout, the touchdown, and the rollout. As we mentioned before, the flare is the part where the direction of the flight path changes. In the approach, the plane had a steady angle toward the runway, toward an aiming point, and if the plane just continued right into the aiming point, it would crash right there. It would just nose right in. So once the plane is at a proper height, which is usually about 10 to 20 feet off the ground in a small airplane, or a lot of people say within a wingspan of the ground, that is where the pilot pulls back to start making a more parallel flight path to the ground. Now, the first thing I'll say is that the type of airplane does determine how high or how low a plane will start the flare. A high-wing airplane, such as a Cessna, will often start higher than a low-wing airplane, like a Piper. Now, if you take a low-wing airplane that has a thinner wing, like perhaps a diamond, then that will start the flare even lower than the Piper, and that is because of the shape of the wing. You can often tell just by looking at the outside of a plane roughly how high or how low you need to start the flare once you've been flying for a while. Again, the flare or the roundout is the official definition is it's a slow, smooth transition from an approach attitude, that's the pitch attitude, to a landing attitude. You're supposed to gradually round out the flight path to one that is parallel with and within a few inches above the runway. That's a direct quote from the FAA. Usually, power in a small airplane is reduced when the plane is just about to start the flare or often just a little while before it. Some planes reduce the power in the flare, especially as the planes start getting larger that, and they're heavier and they have less of a glide distance. That is often when they will reduce the power later. The pilot wants to play a game with themselves where they're pretending that they don't want the plane to land. And they're pretending that they're really just trying to hold the plane off the ground as long as possible. So as the plane sinks, 
the pilot pulls back just enough to hold it off the ground. Then the plane loses a little more energy and sinks again. And then the pilot tries to create more lift by pulling it back. And so it's this constant game where the pilot is pretending that they don't want the plane to land. If the pilot does it properly, as we mentioned before, then the energy will have almost completely dissipated out of the plane and the plane will be at or near a stall right as the wheels touch the ground. Any other comments so far on the flare? Actually, initially it comes to the round out height. So initially it comes round out, then the flare out. So if you race a nose at the round out height because of the energy aircraft may balloon, you have to wait until it goes to the flare out height. So first round out height, then it's called the flare out height. Then you can apply this sink check method. Very interesting. That is an interesting way of breaking it down. I have not heard that before. So you said you have round out height and flare, and those are two different ones. Did I get that correctly? Of course. Wow, that makes sense. I've never heard that before, but I understand what you're saying. The round out would be, uh, for what you're saying, the round out would be when the pilot starts pulling back to change the flight path to one that's parallel. And then the flare would be once the plane feels like it's parallel, the flare would be the part as the plane continues to sink where the pilot tries to hold the plane off the ground as long as possible. That is a great differentiation. Maybe that is how it is. And uh, I easily see how that could be broken into two steps. Thank you. I just learned that. And I, I do not disagree at all. Any other comments on the flare? Yes, Captain. About, uh, I am, by the way, a commercial pilot student, so I'm still struggling for <laughs> the perfect landing. So my question is, while I was studying my private license, I was thinking like a flare is something we do like 10 feet above the ground and a one time uh, pulling back of the controls. But now as, as I become somehow experienced, a little bit experienced, <laughs> it is, it's I think better to start the flaring as we enter the runway, meaning to reduce the rate of descent when we got to the runway and a continued process until we get that 10 to 20 feet above the runway. My question is, am I correct or there is another way of uh, flaring and rounding out perfectly? Thank you. So Eli, as far as your question, which is a great question, I would discourage you from starting the flare too soon because it's dangerous to be at a really slow airspeed when you're too high above the runway. Because what if it's a gusty day and you get a strong wind? I like trying to swoop lower toward the runway. Swoop is not a technical term, but I like trying to get almost as low to the runway as I can before starting the flare because I will fly in really heavy wind and I believe that it is safest to wait as long as possible to reasonably do it. As I became more and more experienced as a pilot, my flares, the initial part of that round out, I would delay those longer and longer for safety. Uh, does that Answer the question. Currently, I am flying the DA40. And as you said, uh, 
some of the times when I start flaring, I mean by flaring, I mean reducing the rate of descent. When I start reducing this rate of descent as I enter the runway, some of the times I ended up bouncing on the runway because uh, I dissipate the energy too soon, I think. The point is, if I continue to just descend until the until until almost I touch the runway, when I give a back pressure, I end up ballooning. That's the problem. How am I going to balance these two things? Thank you, Captain. There are two differences, and we have to be very clear on the difference. So this is something that I would talk about with my students very regularly when I was teaching them how to land. When you start the flare is different than how quickly you pull on the controls. Now, it's possible that you could start flaring at exactly the correct height but you pulled too rapidly and that caused the plane to stall. Uh, I call it parking too high and then it will fall down quickly on the ground. That could lead to a bounce or some other issue. It's also possible that you started at the correct location or the correct height in your flare and round out but you didn't pull quickly enough and then you probably had a flat landing and that can lead into other errors that we'll talk about later like porpoising. Knowing when to start the flare is different than how rapidly you pull on the controls. It can be related because if you start the flare too late, then a pilot will be very tempted to pull rapidly to try to correct for that. And then that can create too much lift and make the plane balloon back up into the air again and that kind of thing. If you had an error in the landing, that doesn't necessarily mean that you started the flare at the wrong location. It might just mean that you pulled at the incorrect speed. Any other comments? Yeah, so I just would like to add that this whole game that we've just been talking about on the flare, on an actual situation, it's something that just takes a few seconds. <laughs> Although we took some time to describe the game, it actually is played really, really quickly. Something around 5 seconds to 10 seconds at most. And on ideal situations, your whole flare movement should be done in just one coordinated and well-timed movement. You shouldn't be fighting the, the, the flight controls or the yoke in order to perform a good landing. Yeah, that's a good point. It, we're spending hours talking about landings and it all happens in a few seconds. By the way, Eli, I'm so glad that you asked that question because I meant to put that in my handout and I didn't. I love every question you have asked today. Gab, I believe I saw your microphone flash. It's a little bit of thing to master, but you can still try it out. If you notice yourself ballooning, you can simply reduce back pressure, and that will stop the balloon. And then you can try flaring again. Okay, we are going to talk about balloons in great detail shortly. It's a little bit more complicated than reducing the back pressure, because that actually brings me to one of my last, uh, one of my other points about flares. There is a danger with changing the direction of the controls in the flare. Once a pilot starts flaring or pulling back on the controls, they want to think of the controls as a one-way street. 
at least in a small plane. There are a few exceptions in large, heavy airplanes, but even then the pilots really shouldn't do it. In a, especially in a small plane, the pilot should never reverse the direction of the controls and push forward on the controls once they've begun the landing process. And the reason is that the plane is dissipating out energy so quickly, even if the pilot pulls too rapidly backwards, if they try to reverse it, it's going to be too much because all they have to do, they can stop pulling on the controls and pause for a moment, but they should never reverse the direction. That is a bad habit. Sometimes pilots can get away with it, and then that leads them to continue the bad habit, and that can lead into some pretty dangerous situations like the porpoise. Once a, it's just it's just not a good habit. Period. So once you start pulling back on the controls, you can stop pulling for a moment to let the plane lose more energy, and you can continue pulling in the original direction. But remember never reverse the direction of the controls. Sometimes in a heavier airplane, you can sort of get away with it. But again, it's still a bad habit. Uh, Eli, go ahead. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I'm the one who's going to fight because, but as a student pilot, because um, I didn't get, st- I, I, I still didn't get uh, the twin of this uh, back pressure. When I give a back pressure and I, I, I get the tendency of ballooning, I just uh, reduce the back pressure, which will bring me to a straight end level. But if the balloon is uh, in with higher uh, much energy, I just give some power. Then I, I come back to the straight end level altitude with the runway. That time when the airplane tends to sink, I just give some back, I increase the back pressure, increase the back pressure until the main wheel contacts the ground. It might be bad habits, but that's what uh, brings me down to the ground uh, safely most of the time. <laughs> Thank you. Actually, what you said sounds sounded correct to me. You said you stop, uh, you just stop pulling back. You didn't say you reversed it. You just said you stopped pulling. And then sometimes you add a little power. And then once the plane starts sinking again, you just, you could essentially continue the flare and you keep pulling back. That actually does sound correct. Now that we've spoken about the flare, there is one other thing that we do need to talk about, and that is eye placement. If someone is listening who is a flight instructor, you really want to listen carefully because this is going to be one of the big secrets to helping your students learn how to land quickly instead of having it take a long time. Eye placement is very important. As the pilot starts the round out for the flare, this is where they need to force their eyes to move down the runway. And the location can vary a bit. Normally, a lot of people say it's about three quarters of the way down the runway or to it's a, it's a part that looks less blurry or more stationary. But you definitely have to move your eyes out far enough that you give yourself better peripheral vision and just better vision in general. Because if your eyes look too close, then the sight picture, what you're seeing in your perspective, is going to change so quickly that your brain does not have time to process it. A lot of times when pilots 
look too close, they will end up flaring too high. And sometimes people say the reverse is true. If they're looking too far, they'll flare too low. I'm not sure if I believe that, but it's very common if a pilot is flaring too high that their eyes are just looking too close. As a flight instructor, I can almost always fix it when the student's flaring too high. I just look at where their eyes are when they're landing, and then I as often it's hard to get them to admit that they were doing it because pilots hate admitting that they were actually doing it. But if the pilot is willing to admit and then willing to force themselves to change, often with a flight instructor there to catch the mistakes, then they can retrain their eyes to look out down the runway in the proper direction. Who has comments about eye placement and or maybe things you've learned? We'll start with Eli, and then I saw another microphone flash. Yeah, thank you, Captain. This is actually what I'm learning these days. One of my finest landings, when I, when I realized back how did I do the good landing, my eyes were uh, looking at the end of the runway. Looking like short of the runway, I mean uh, near the, the nose of the airplane, makes me feel like uh, I'm about to hit the ground while I was high. Then I give back pressure, and that back pressure is even with a very, very uh, high speed back pressure, which ended up um, being uh, ballooning. So one thing I am learning these days, and actually I am eager to try this on the next Monday, which I have a flight. The eye placement is, I think, very much critical in flaring at the right altitude. This is to just make it bold. Thank you, Captain. Oh, thank you. That is exactly supporting my point. That is exactly, exactly what happens. And as a flight instructor, from day one or lesson one or maybe lesson two at the latest, the flight instructor's job is to tell the students where to put their eyes and when. Even if the flight instructor is still the one landing the plane at the beginning, the flight instructor should be saying, now move your eyes out toward the end of the runway. That is so important for developing the correct habit for a student is to tell them early on in their training how to move their eyes because it's not natural. The human eye wants to focus 30 feet out in front. That's sort of like the natural resting position for the human eye. So if a flight instructor doesn't teach that properly from the very beginning, there might be a lot of extra pain for that student as the student has to unlearn bad habits later and they can't figure out why it's taking so long to learn how to land. It's also, um, if not every aircraft is installed with an eye height indicator, it's really important to know your perfect seat position. Sometimes there are numbers on the seats as well. But it's also very important that your whole body is not in a, in a stressed position. So also the alignment of your elbows, uh, foot, feet, if your feet, and also the, the seat pitch is really important. Because if their body is under some kind of stress or pressure, that will harm your uh, landing for sure somehow. Oh, Philip, I am so happy for both of your comments. Yes, holding the controls correctly is so important. That is a conversation for another time. But if you have to put too much pressure on the controls, it probably means that the plane isn't trimmed out properly. 
And again, how you sit is so, so important. Eye placement involves the seat height as well. And I was actually going to speak about this because it's this is a common error that you see when you have a tall flight instructor and a short student. The instructor doesn't realize how important it is to get the student's eyes up to the correct height. A lot of short people, including myself, I'm five foot four. I had to use a lot of cushions, especially in my early training. I had to sit on cushions in order to see properly over the nose of the airplane. It is a little embarrassing, but it's just what has to be done. So I would raise my seat up all as high as it would go, and then I would often use one or two cushions just so that I could sit in the right position. So I was very aware of eye height, but as an experienced instructor, I would often have other instructors send their students to me who were just having a really difficult time landing. And one of the first things I would do when the student sat in the plane is I would look at the student and I would move myself up or down until my eyes were on the same height as the student's. And I would look at what they were seeing when my eyes were at their height. And sometimes I could just solve all of a student's problems just by doing that one exercise. I remember one time where I looked over to talk to the student and it was like I was looking straight above his head. It was the funniest thing. I don't even know how he progressed that far in his lessons, to be honest. I was embarrassed that this other flight instructor had even let him go that long. And it was kind of funny. I mean, I there was no eye contact when I looked straight over. He was sitting so low. So I kind of joked with him I th- that we didn't even need to fly because I think I already fixed his problem. So eye placement is super important. In a Cessna, one of the tricks that you can use, like a Cessna 172, is that the eyes should usually be around the top of the side window. They should be about the same height as the top of the side window. So you can use that in Cessnas, most of the small Cessnas. It's different, though, in different airplanes. Who has comments about eye placement? Yeah. Placement, it's not something easy for us. By us, I mean myself and Philip, because we are tall. We do suffer a little bit, especially in my case, that I tra- most of my training was done on a Cessna 152, where you don't have a lot of space to place yourself. One of the tips that I had from my flight instructors was that I had to relax more my neck in order to make my head move a little bit easier, especially during these phases where I need to be shifting my my visual focus. That's something to take into consideration as well. That works until you first fly an aircraft with a head-up display, then your neck will hurt. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um, the azimuth on that head-up display is like really, really small. That is a great point. Thank you for representing tall people very well. And that is why there is more than one person speaking here because uh, I actually did not know that I should add that in for a tall person, but it makes perfect sense. We do want to speak about two other things. We want to speak about the touchdown and the rollout. So let's talk about the touchdown. The touchdown 
is when the airplane settles onto the landing surface. It's when the wheels touch and then the plane still has some lift in it and the plane still has to dissipate out the energy even though the wheels are touching. The plane is gradually sinking down onto the wheels and usually on a nose wheel plane or a tricycle gear plane, it's hopefully it just touches on the back wheels first and then the pilot it has to be careful to slowly let the nose lower down to the ground as a continued process of dissipating out the energy. A new student will often feel the back wheels touch and then they'll just let go of the controls and then the nose will slam down hard on the ground and that's not good for the plane and you will not impress your passengers either if you try that. The touchdown is the plane is still very much creating some lift as it begins to touch down. And it's still a process of gradually dissipating out the lift, even though the wheels are touching. Another comment that I want to say is that the pitch attitude of the touchdown should look very similar to the pitch attitude of the takeoff on the plane. The only difference might be if the plane has flaps in, then that would change the sight picture a little bit. However, the approximate height of the pilot's eyes off the ground is still going to be fairly close. The reason this might be helpful is if you are the kind of pilot who flies a lot of different airplanes. I used to do some ferry flights for maintenance. And I would fly airplanes that I had never flown before. It's a little bit scary to learn how to land a plane that you've never even seen. And when I would do the takeoff in these unfamiliar airplanes, I would pay very close attention to what it looked like and how high my eyes were off the ground right as the plane lifted off. When I landed, I would try to mimic something close to that situation. Yeah, it's also different whether your aircraft is a negative pitch aircraft uh, until the flare or a positive pitch air- pitched aircraft. Oh, would you explain a little bit more about that for those who don't know? Yeah, so the thing is, there are some aircraft out there, they are pretty rare, where the aircraft's nose attitude is always negative until you start your flare. And there are other aircraft, uh, most of the bigger aircraft are out there, that are having a constantly um, positive pitch attitude, nose up. And um, so the side picture is also very different, especially when people who who are experienced with a positive pitch are uh, are flying a negative pitched aircraft for the first time. They always think that they're doing steep approaches. Are you talking about a mid-size European aircraft? Yeah, with the four engines, that was a negative pitched aircraft. And later on the other side flown, uh, yeah, that was always positive. Mm-hmm. I think right, uh, the other way around, going from a positive to a negative aircraft is like, uh, it's way different. The two, engine, the, the two engine version has a negative pitch on the ground as well. Thank you for pointing that out. Even though we are speaking about generalities here, again, It's worth noting that there are a lot of interesting 
airplane designs, and it's not always going to apply to every airplane. And I often tell people this, but remember that nothing that we teach you here is meant to be official flight instruction. Think of this more as entertainment to help you ask the right questions. These aren't definitive answers. So that is a good point. Okay, so we talked about the touchdown. And as we said before, but I'll just say it again, the plane should be at or near a stall. It doesn't technically have to be stalled. If it is a really windy day, it might be safer not to have a full stall on the airplane, uh, just because then the plane is less susceptible to gusts. Let's just keep that in mind as well. Okay, now we will talk about the fourth and the final part of the landing, and that is the landing rollout. And my advice to you would be fly the airplane. Yes, it's true. The airplane is still on the ground and it's decelerating. This is the part where the plane decelerates. However, just because the plane is slowing down, it doesn't mean that the pilot's attention should slow down. Some pilots can do beautiful landings and then stop paying attention and skid on something on the runway or miss their taxiway. Or sometimes you're taxiing in at the end of the flight and then you accidentally ding the wingtip on the side of a hangar or something like that. Pilots like to say that you should not stop flying the plane until the engine is shut down and you either have a brake set and or you have chocks in on the wheels to hold it in one place. Keep paying close attention to your airplane And as you decelerate, do pay attention to directional control. Uh, That's the side-to-side control. Remember that if the plane is traveling quickly, a small input on the controls can have a big effect. So you do not want to overreact on the controls because that speed can translate that into a bigger motion than you would expect if the plane was at a lower speed. To some extent, as the plane is decelerating, the control surfaces are still creating a certain amount of lift. The rudder is still working just a little bit because there's airflow over it. And same with the ailerons and the wings. So there's a lot happening and the pilot should still be very vigilant. It is more important to fly the airplane and to control the airplane, which is really what I'm saying, than it is to try to be a hero and get off the runway too soon. Because we want the control of the airplane is very important, that directional control. Now, so that brings up a good point about braking. A lot of pilots that are new and inexperienced believe that a good landing involves one where they land short. And so they think that part of this involves braking really hard after they land to make it look like they had a short flare. Maybe there's one taxiway that their instructor can always get off on. And so maybe they they did a longer landing, but then they'll just slam on the brakes to try to get off at that same taxiway that their instructor did because they think that they will look like a hero just to get off the runway in a short distance. Well, 
if you can do a short flare and the proper techniques for a short field landing, you are a hero. And however, if you wear out the brakes on your airplane, you are not a hero. (laughs) There is a difference here. So in a small airplane, it is usually a good idea. It's a good rule of thumb to let the plane decelerate to half of the landing speed before you even apply the brakes. It's interesting that the experienced pilots are the one who they're the ones who respect people that can go a long time between brake changes. I know a lot of experienced pilots that own their own airplanes that will brag how long they can go between, excuse me, I meant tire changes, not brake changes. They will brag, you know, I, my, my tires almost uh, were rotting before I changed them because I am such a good pilot. I always let the plane decelerate on its own. That is how an experienced pilot brags. An inexperienced pilot says, I stopped the airplane quickly. And of course, they are costing their flight school a lot of money or maybe themselves or whoever owns the airplane because they're just wearing that rubber right off of those tires. Any other thoughts or comments on braking, Omar? Hey, Captain, this just reminded me of my private pilot checkride. So I have two things to say about this. First of all, on my short field takeoff on my private pilot checkride, I went off the center line. I was trying to use the whole runway that my most of my wing was on the grass and my examiner looked at me and he was like, hey, we have a 5,000 foot runway and this is a Cessna 152. He was like, we simulate, you can say simulating because it's not a real short field. You know, you don't have to get off the center line and do all this crazy stuff. We are, it's not a real short field. So he, he was like, especially in a twin, if you do that, you can actually take the runway edge lights with your with your other engine. And then I like the saying the Russian says, we pay for the full runway, we use the full runway. So yeah, I just wanted to uh, chime in and say that. Oh, I love that expression. I love that. And you are correct. On the test for the checkride, the test at the end called the checkride, there is a requirement to demonstrate a short field landing I do not know if every examiner wants it to be simulated heavy braking at the end. I think some of them might want it to be actually demonstrated, but I respect your examiner, and I think that's probably the best choice is to tell the students to say that they are simulating it. Let's go to Enrique. Yeah, also you have to take into consideration that when you apply heavy braking, you're pretty much in shifting some of that potential energy from the aircraft towards the front, whether that's a tricycle gear or a, a tail dragger. So you need to take in consideration the risk of piloting your aircraft. And that's especially considered on tail draggers, where uh, I just did a couple of hours during my flight training, but that was a, a more considerable risk compared to a Cessna for example, where you have the tricycle gear. Yes. So a tailwheel airplane has these tendencies for ground looping and a lot of other tendencies. We'll speak a little bit more about that in our next section about troubleshooting. Philip, go ahead. Yeah, also wrong braking also uh, ruins the brake on the long term, especially when you are just 
breaking a tiny little bit. The RPM of the wheels is still very high and therefore the temperatures are rising on the brakes too. So sometimes um, a lot of a lot of people, you also see it on your cars. If you are always braking just a tiny little bit or just uh, to, to brake a little bit to get rid of the uh, cruise control on the long term, that can harm your brake. Yeah, and so it's we're talking about saving your tires, saving your brakes. It's just better for the airplane in general. Last question. If you are in a small airplane and the plane starts to skid, what do you do with the brakes? Do you just slam on the brakes and let them lock up, or what do you do? Let's go to Mo. I saw the microphone flash. As we talked before, it's better because the airplane, uh, like the small airplanes, they don't have the ABS systems like the cars. They uh, so they lock the brake. So it's better to hit the brake and release it and hit it again uh, to simulating the ABS for the cars. Perfect, perfect. Tap the brakes on the small air airplane because you do not have an anti-lock braking system, and. If the brakes do lock up, that can be a terrible situation. First of all, you will not have as much brake effectiveness as you think. A locked wheel that's completely locked actually has a lower coefficient of friction, which means that you do not brake as well. Also, you can wear a flat spot in your airplane tire uh, all the way down just from one locked wheel as you come into land. And I don't know how much those tires cost anymore, but I think they probably start at least around $300. So, and that's just one tire. So, in just one bad landing, you can wear a flat spot in the tire. And I've seen tires where all of the, the dark rubber is gone and there is what we call white cord showing on a huge flat spot. And sometimes it can even go flatter than that. That would be some good advice as you do that rollout and you do the braking. Remember not to lock the tires. This is Captain Teresa. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy. We don't always have the right answers. I ask you to view this as entertainment and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback, or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, landingswithaflare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the club pilot flight training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.